So tonight, as I say, we're going to start with what must we do to be saved? This is going to be a basic introductory um, level uh, talk, and we're going to talk about some basic terms, because we grew up, in, most of us, in this society, and this uh, uh, Protestant milieu, go ahead, and, uh, and we are dominated by the Protestant ideas many times without his even knowing it right we grow up we hear terms like salvation grace kingdom all these terms that we use and we think we know what they mean we kind of assume we know what they mean don't we because we we hear them everywhere and people use them but do we actually know what they mean as they're properly intended by the scriptures understood by the fathers and actual the greek languages which which has been handed down to us do we actually know what they mean uh and in order to do that, we have to always follow the Holy Fathers. That is what it means to be an Orthodox Christian. You cannot be and remain an Orthodox Christian if you do not have, as one of your main goals, is that when you approach Scripture and you approach all these questions of your spiritual life, you're running continually to the Holy Fathers of the Church and you're following them. As a very famous Greek writer in the uh, 15th century, Joseph Verenius, uh, wrote, it is impossible to come to know the truth or to grasp theology in any other way but by following the saints, following the Holy Fathers. At the beginning of every ecumenical council, the Holy Fathers of all the councils began their text, their decision, with the following words, following the Holy Fathers, ipomenes tisagis patrasi in Greek. That's how they understood themselves. And that's how we have to understand ourselves as Orthodox if we're going to remain Orthodox. And that's exactly how the Lord intended. Look at what he did. He, he came and spent a very limited number of years on this earth, did all the economy of salvation, accomplished all the economy of salvation, and imparted the work and the continuation of the incarnation and salvation, the economy of salvation, to his disciples. And obviously the implication was that this would continue on after the apostles, just as he says, as the Father has sent me, I send you. And as I have been given, so you should pass on to those coming after you. So it's already there, very explicit and implicit in Scripture, that all of those who would be his disciples from all the ages going forward would be receiving and passing on what they had been given, had been given by the Lord to the apostles and to the, and to the Holy Fathers. And that is the meaning of tradition. And so when we consider that, and then we think about the society and the spiritual milieu which we've been raised in, it is antithetical to that in every possible way. Protestantism is a revolution and a revolt against holy tradition. And therefore, it is necessarily not Christian. Now you might say, well, these people are very sincere. Yes, there are many, many sincere people who are Protestants, and they want to, and, and they do struggle to follow Christ. But the religious experience that they, they live by, and the ideas that they, they trade in, are not coming down to us from the Holy Fathers. They're not being passed on from generation to generation. They have been cut off, and they are, they are in every generation, as, as it were, re uh, rediscovered and, 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 and thought of for the first time. There's not a continuation, a dia, diachronic key, a diachronic continuation throughout time. 
but that means they're cut off from the Incarnation because the Church is the continuation of the Incarnation in every age. The Lord is not a respecter of persons. This is something we read in the, in the book of Acts. What does that mean? He doesn't play favorites. So whatever He gave to the Apostles, He gives to you and I in the Church. Whatever experience they had of Christ, the, the, the ability or the, the, the possibility to experience Christ, we also have in the church. There is not a double standard that, well, you and I at the end of the, uh, the uh, 2,000 years in and possibly at the end of the end times now, we only have access to a portion of what the apostles or the great saints had. No, that's not true, actually. Now, having said that, we have many more obstacles today in many ways, than the, our predecessors and our fathers and forefathers had. And on the human side, we've erected many obstacles. But on the divine side, he is giving the same thing to every generation and the opportunity to become like him, which is the whole goal of, and the point of his incarnation, is for you and I to become like him. That's that, nothing short of that. That's what salvation means. It means likeness of God. We were created in the image and likeness. We lost the likeness in the fall. The image was blurred. And then with baptism, what are we given? The image is restored. The likeness now is, is in front of us. It is a struggle throughout our life. It has to involve our free will. There has to be synergy for the likeness. The gift is of salvation has been given to us. We've been restored. We will rise with all of humanity. No one will remain in the grave. But the degree of likeness necessarily means that you and I have to participate with our free will. And depending on how we conform ourselves to His will will determine how much of the likeness we achieve before we depart from this, uh, this world. So... If we are not following the Holy Fathers, we are not a part of the, the, the Incarnation, the continuation of the Incarnation. And only in the Church of Christ, of course, do we follow the Holy Fathers and we live the life of the Holy Fathers. So what must we do to be saved? This is from uh, Acts 16, 30-34. And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, someone, you remember the jailer, uh, thought there was an earthquake, and he thought that he had lost his, uh, his prisoners, which was the apostles, and he was about to kill himself, and the apostle Paul said, no, do not do that, and he came, he came to uh, them, and he said, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house, and they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. And he took the same, and he took them the same hour of the night, and was and washed their stripes. He was their persecutor. He was among the persecutors of the apostles. Now he washes their stripes, and was baptized. He was not chrismated. He was baptized, and he and he and all his household straight away. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. So let's look at this. Go ahead. Believe and be baptized. He believed on the Lord and he was baptized. So let's talk about this. What is faith, first of all? This is the foundation for everything in the church. Every 
person who has made progress in the healing of their soul and restoration in Christ has increased the faith to a great degree, the trust. And everybody who is sick in this world is sick because they lack trust, they lack faith, they lack an experience of the one who is the, uh, the incarnate Lord. All of the sickness and the health is, is on this line between faith, trust, and faithlessness, doubt. This is a basis of everything. But, in, but, in, but the reality is that it's not just faith, and we talk about in the, we hear about in the Protestant Mudo, if you believe, uh, you say the prayer, uh, you are saved, the Lord has saved you, and that's it. But this is only the subjective side of the, the whole uh, synergy of salvation. It's not enough. The human element is not enough to be saved. Obviously, there must be synergy. So the Lord doesn't just say, believe and follow after me, but believe and be baptized. And be baptized. Now, that belief that we're talking about is of two kinds. There is not just... Many people think of faith and they think, well, faith is to believe that Christ is God, to confess him as God. That is the faith or the faith of the Orthodox faith that we that we confess in the creed. This is the faith of the church. This is absolutely necessary because what is that but a recognition of reality? That is ex essentially what we do every time we say the creed. And we should be saying it in the morning in our morning prayers. We should say it in the evening in Compline. And we say it at every divine liturgy. So many times during the week, you should be confessing the symbol of faith, the creed. And so it's the foundation of the church, right? Because what it essentially is saying, the same thing that Peter said. The Lord said, on this, on this foundation, I will build my church. What did Peter say? You are the Christ, Lord. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. So the confession of his divinity, that this is not a man, but a God-man. This is the Theanthropos, is the foundation, the rock of the church. And so without that, you are, it's impossible to do what? To have a relationship with Jesus Christ, as Jesus Christ, as the God-man. So you are not in reality, you're in delusion, and therefore you can't, you can't develop a relationship with the person of Christ. And so the foundation has to be the confession of the faith. And then we begin to know him as he truly is. This was the whole, the whole uh, darkness that, that was done away with, the light that came into the world with the theophany, is that he revealed himself. Who am I? I am, uh, the, the God is uh, Trinity. Uh, and he is the second person of the Trinity, and now he is incarnate, and we come face to face with our maker, our creator, our redeemer. So that's absolutely essential. Why do we have so many struggles throughout history for the preservation of this faith? Because it is a matter of salvation. Nothing in the church, and indeed nothing in, li in the life of Christ, has, is, is unrelated to our salvation. Everything Christ did, he did it for us and our salvation. Everything the fathers did, the struggle of the church fathers throughout 2,000 years, is for us and our salvation. If this is lost, it is impossible to come to know God and to be saved. So this idea now that we have, after 500 years of the Protestant, the form Protestantism, 1,000 years after the papal Protestantism began, we have a relativization of this. And we have people who say, it doesn't matter. We have differences in dogma. We have differences in beliefs about uh, the life in Christ, all these things. It doesn't matter. We, 
we have many times under my under the videos that we post many times we have comments like we're all the same it doesn't matter you shouldn't you're you're mean <laughs> um, you don't love us uh, these kind of things but what they don't realize is that we indeed love them very very much and it's just like the church fathers love the heretics of their days very very much and they wanted to bring them back into the fold, into the church, into the experience of the, the divinity. And so this is essential. And today we're struggling again, as we have 2,000 years, again and again, we're struggling to preserve the faith as it has been handed down to us and pass it on to generations for the salvation of the world. That's what's at stake with ecumenism, with the heresy of ecumenism. But that's not enough. If you have that, you have not yet arrived at salvation. If you lose it, you are for sure shut off from salvation. But if you only have that, you have not arrived at salvation. Because there's two kinds of faith, and you have to go on to the next kind. You have to go deeper, and that is to trust Him. To trust Him. Peter confessed the divinity, and yet he, de he denied the Savior. And he wept for his denial, and then he came back in humility and repentance, and is restored threefold by our Lord after his resurrection to become again a disciple. So he had to come back. He, he, he his, his confession was not enough. He had to come back and put trust in the master and live for the master. And that's what happened with his restoration after his denial. So we must move on from confessing reality to communing with reality. Salvation is communion with the person of Christ. That's why you cannot be saved simply on the basis of confessing and accepting the reality. That's like somebody saying, uh, I, uh, I, I know that uh, Father Gregory exists, uh, and I believe that he exists, and I confess that he exists, but I don't actually, I've never met him, and I'm not interested in meeting him. I don't need to actually sit down and eat any food with him or go to divine liturgy with him. It's enough for us to just know and confess each other's existence, to have a relationship. But that's nonsense. To have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have to trust Him. And that is what the meaning of faith is. In Greek, the term is, for trust has faith within it. Embistosini, pisti is faith, and the word trust, embistosini, has faith within it. And this is the kind of faith. Now, how do we come to such a faith? We'll talk about that tonight. Very important. That's the whole question that should be in front of us. As baptized, chrismated, communion, orthodox Christians, we confess the faith. Now we have to go deeper and trust. How does, that's, what, that's what we should be concerned about every day. How do I go deeper in trusting and entrusting my whole life to Christ so that I can have a face-to-face -face personal relationship, deep experience, epignosis, a knowledge of Jesus Christ. But again, it's not enough. There's the second part, which is baptism. What is, why is it necessary for us to be baptized? You know, there's some Protestant heretical groups who say you don't need to be baptized. That's, that's not important. And they've arrived there probably because they have made the mysteries of the church into symbols. And, not, and symbols in the sense of an emptiness, right? There's an empty, something pointing to something else as if they're not also participating in the reality that they point to. The mysteries of the church bring us into contact with reality. They are the bridge that, that, that brings man and God in, into communion. And, and therefore, they're Christ. The mysteries are Christ himself. In every mystery, Christ gives himself and is given. So the minute you say someone is baptized, you're saying 
that they have been given and, are, and, and Christ himself has given himself to them. And therefore, they're a part of his body. That's what it means to be baptized. You are baptized into the body of Christ and you uh, have been united to Christ himself. So baptism is essential, not just a confession of faith, because it brings us into communion with the what the saints call, we're going to talk about this tomorrow morning, the n-hypostatic faith. The n-hypostatic faith. This is very fascinating. We're not going to be able to go too much deeper into it, just a few things tomorrow. But what is the n-hypostatic faith? It's Christ himself. You'll see tomorrow very interesting quotes from the fathers. He is faith. His life is faith. Has anybody ever read the book by Father Sophroni, uh, Saint Sophroni, His Life is Mine? Anybody read that? You read that? I don't know if it circulates anymore. I think it's been changed maybe in America. It has a different title in America. But in, in, when I read it in England 30 years ago, it was, a life, it was a game changer, as they say. His life is mine. That's what we, in the church, our whole life becomes Christ. What does St. Paul says? It's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In order for you, again, to obtain the likeness, you have to have Christ himself and his faithfulness becomes yours. His, his intimacy, his light, his grace becomes yours. Your life becomes his and his, he, he becomes, uh, your life becomes his and his life becomes yours. It's, a, it's a, a unity. We see that in the book of Revelation, for instance. What does it say? That the reward of Christ is the faithful one, and the reward of the faithful one is Christ. Christ lived and died and arose and ascended and will come again entirely for us in our salvation. And we, in return, live our whole life entirely for His, his, uh, uh, purpose, his person and, and the love of Him. So, there has to be this synergy, right? So it's not enough to simply say, he saves me. I confess him and he saves me. We have to also participate in that. And yet the strangeness of this is that all of our synergy, all of our participation, at the end of the day is zero. You say, well, what's, what, what does it account for then? What, how, how does this work? Where's the synergy if, we're, if everything we do is zero? Well, because he puts his person before everything we do, or we put him before everything we do. He becomes the one before all of our zeros and gives all of our zeros value, right? That's the nature of the synergy of Christ and man. It's not a 50-50. It's a hundred and zero, and yet the one that he gives again is what gives all of our efforts uh, value. And so that's essentially in a nutshell, what asceticism is all about, is that we're struggling in a variety of ways for him and in him, and then he takes that and gives it all value, right? If you and I struggle for virtue outside of Christ, indifferent to Christ, not for Christ and not in Christ, we not having any synergy, not having Christ first and foremost, that all dies with us. But when he's First and foremost, in, in front of everything, and, and we're doing it for him and in him, all of that takes on eternal implications, eternal ramifications. So he is all in all, but he can't be all in all unless you and I are struggling to love more and more. So how, 
Is it that some do not believe? In other words, they don't recognize the reality of Christ. How is it that some do not believe? Because we have many people who do not believe. Even people in the church who stand in, in church on Sunday and yet they don't believe. Not just they don't trust their life to Christ. They don't even believe. How is it that people come to that and they don't, they doubt the reality. They say, I don't know. I, is, is it real? Is, is Christ real? Is the gospel real? Are these events real? And it's really, if you think about it, in the gospel, they say, it says that the demons tremble and believe. The demons tremble and believe. So how can a man stand insensitive to Christ and his, not only his personal revelation, but his entire economy of salvation, which is the presence of God in the world? What do the demons have that we don't have? It's possible that we're even worse off than the demons. What is it that they have that we don't have? Well, they understand who Christ is. They fell from him. They see him. They recognized him. Even They began to recognize him even during his economy, even during his, his uh, sojourn on this earth. And somewhere in the gospel it says, he come, the demons come to the Lord when he's going to cast, he cast out the demons from the one who was in the tombs, in the Garganese, I think we say in English. Uh, and, uh, and they say, they beg him. They recognize his authority and they beg him to send them into the swine. And that was a, a whole other issue. Why do they want to go into the swine? They wanted to ruin the economy of the sinful Jews who were raising swine so that they might turn against the Lord. It's all very deceptive. And the Lord, who they recognize his authority, and he sends them into the swine. So the, the demons know who Christ is. The difference between the demons, of course, and the apostle here is that they do not submit themselves. They have no humility. So the man who cannot even say Christ is God is actually worse off than the demons who recognize his authority but do not obey. But it's not far. The pride that a man has that cannot confess and the pride the demons have are not far because deep down, as Elder Athanasius Metinonius says, there are no atheists in this world. Yes, on one level, in the mind, they say, we don't believe, we don't accept. But we are created in man's image and God's image and likeness. So, in spite of ourselves, we confess his greatness. Every knee shall bow, it says in Scripture. What does that mean? We, we, have you ever asked yourself, how does it say that in Scripture, since there are many knees that do not bow? Well, in spite of themselves, they confess Christ with their very existence, as does all of the, the illogical or, or irrational creation confesses Christ. And they will confess Christ at his second coming. But for us to move from the kind of, obviously, status of the demons, beyond that, into trust, confession and trust, and to increase that trust, then we have to follow the footsteps of the Apostle John here. What does the Apostle John say in his first epistle? He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life, for the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us, that which we have seen and heard declare unto you, we unto you, that ye also may have communion with us. 
And truly, our communion is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. See how many times in this, basically one sentence here, how many times does He say, seen, handled, heard, looked upon, manifested, and then all of that, so that we, he, that ye also may have communion with us, and truly our communion is with the Father and the Spirit. So you have communion with us, and we have communion with the Father, and we all together are in the one body and in the communion with God. All of this manifestation, all of this, this experience that God gave us while he walked on this earth is for one purpose. It leads to communion. In other words, it leads to Pentecost, what we just celebrated. That's the whole end of the, the economy of salvation that leads us to Pentecost. Pentecost is the end of all the roads. After Pentecost, there is no, no more revelation until the second coming. There's nothing new after Pentecost. There's, it's the beginning of the end of all things after the uh, descent of the Holy Spirit. So the end is communion. That is salvation. Nothing less than communion is salvation. So, again, Christ is not a respecter of, of persons. In other words, he's not, he doesn't play favorites. What he gave to the apostles, he wants to give to all of us. And we should seek, like Thomas, that blessed uh, lack of faith, they say, the blessed apistia, uh, um, faithlessness of Thomas, is that he wanted the experience of the resurrected Lord as the Apostle says here, he wanted to touch, feel, see, experience the Lord himself, that communion, and that is what we should all have. And that is when the Apostle Paul talks about in his epistles, he talks about the epignosis, the Greek word is epignosis, knowledge is translated, but it's not just knowledge, intellectual knowledge, it's not knowledge about Christ. It's knowledge of Christ. What's the difference? One is a, 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 an idea, a, a conception, a, 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 something we consider, oh, Christ is this, Christ is that, the icons depict this, and we talk about that, and it's that experience, that knowledge is right here in our brain. It goes about as far up uh, beyond our brain as our hair, because the knowledge that he wants to give us is the experiential knowledge, the epignosis, right? That means hands-on knowledge. It's not an accident that he says we've handled the Lord. We have hands-on knowledge, experiential knowledge. So if we enter the church, we struggle, many of us struggle to enter the church after a long period of, of uh, walking through the deserts of this, of this, of this life uh, in sin and in delusion. And we finally find the church. Of course, we're extremely grateful to God. And yet now begins the process and the experience that the Lord intended for all of us from the beginning of time to Adam and Eve. This is what he wants for us, to have that kind of intimate, immediate experience of God and man. This is what it means to be saved. This is what it means to have salvation, to have that experience. And you'll see, go ahead, that many of us in this life do not make much progress. And so many people say, well, I guess I won't be saved. Well, here's the good news, that in, in these last days, when we don't have much of an experience that we seek, we should all be seeking it. We should all, all spend our whole life desiring it. But many of us do not make much progress. So what if we don't have epignosis and thus have little faith, little trust, what the apostle 
what the Lord said to the Apostle Peter when he got out of the boat and walked on the water. Have you ever walked on water? <laughs> he walked on water. He obviously had a good degree of trust. And yet his eyes were taken off of the master and immediately he fell in the water. And what did the Lord said? O ye of little faith. Oligopistia in Greek, right? So, if we're honest, we have oligopistia. We have little faith, little trust. We want to have more. And we beg, Lord, increase our faith, right? So what do we do? Well, we trust and follow the Holy Fathers and the saints. So many of us can't come to have an experience, and so we lack trust and lack uh, that, that, that uh, total uh, giving over of our life and our will to Christ. Well, then, and if you don't have the experience of the saints, you trust those who had the experience of the Master. And in all humility, you say, I am unworthy. I have not made progress, but I trust those who had the experience that I desire. And that is a protection against delusions, a protection against falling away. And that, in that humility, you might say, well, is that it? No, in that humility then, in that deepening of self-knowledge, like we acknowledge who we are, then the Lord visits us. When we go deeper in humility, deeper and, and more clear in self-knowledge of ourself, then God reveals himself to us more and more. So the path, even for us who are poor, last Christians, the 8th century Christians, as they say in Greek, the Ogdoites, the, the last century of Christians here, uh, we, we can still make much progress if we don't, aren't led by this, but are led by this, right? We don't try to figure it all out, but we try to go deeper in humility, deeper in self-knowledge. And so we imitate Christ and the little Christ throughout history. We look at the saints continually, and just as, we, as an apprentice sits at the foot of a master, we sit at the feet of the Holy Fathers, and we go deeper. And so that's to answer the question for many of us. I'm sure I would have questions at the end tonight. Well, Father, we don't have the experiences of the Apostle John. What are we going to do? Well, that's one answer to that question. And that will take us further on the path of true epignosis for ourselves. One of the, the presuppositions here for even coming close to reaching what the, the Lord desired and gave to his apostles is repentance. So let's talk about repentance because this also has been totally distorted in most in, in the popular conception. What is repentance, right? Uh, it says, for instance, in the scriptural passages, the, the translations of uh, of the scriptures, it says, I think in the King James even, it says that Judas repented. Did Judas repent? What do you think? Judas did not repent. So either the term had a different meaning in the 15th, 16th century in England, or they had a mistranslation. The Greek term, the Greek word does not say uh, metania, metania, but it says metamelia, which means remorse. So repentance is not remorse. It is not remorse. If you feel bad about your sins, that's fine. That's a, it's better than not feeling bad about your sins, but it's not yet repentance. Repentance is what Peter did. Remorse is what Judas did, right? He had remorse and he still killed himself. 
Unfortunately, in our day, there are more and more people who are taking their own lives because they fall into despair like Judas. Instead of trusting the Master, they lose sight of the goal of this life, which is salvation and, and communion. They think the goal is maybe, I don't know, success or peace or something very temporal. And so then they end up giving up. Peter denied, just as Judas did, he denied him three times, in fact, three times, and yet he came to himself. So repentance is a, in Greek, is a change of mind. But it doesn't say dianya here, right? Dianya would be the word that we use for the rational intellect, the mind. It says a change of the noose. So for the longest time, I always thought a change of mind or acquiring the mind of Christ, I didn't have, you know, given much thought before I started studying Orthodox theology and the Church Fathers, but I assumed it meant changing our outlook, let's say, on life and how we consider a creation or, you know, various issues in life. So we have a different outlook. But this doesn't say we change our consideration about things, but we change our, our, our experience or the spirit. Another way to say noose in English, as it's in Scripture, is the spirit of man. That's much easier for us to understand, I think, than the word noose, which is not an English word. And intellect, which is usually the way it's translated, is also not very easy for us to understand because in the West, in the Protestant papal, uh, papal Protestant and Reformed Protestant West, the whole understanding and experience of the noose or the noetic realm was lost over time. And that, that was uh, evidenced in their very definitions of the terms and the understanding of the human person. And so metania, metania is a change of stance or reorientation, not chiefly of the rational intellect, but of the spirit of man, the noose or the noetic stance of man, right? So his, his experience with relation to Christ, who he is, because that is the organ by which we commune with God. It's the another way to talk about the noose is the eye of the soul. It's the spiritual eyes that we have, right? So when we reorient our physical eyes and we gaze upon something that's, let's say, beautiful, blessed, wonderful, uh, truth, beauty, and goodness, right? We have a reorientation and we look at those things and we turn away from that which is ugly, which is uh, sick, which is diseased, right? We have that, that kind of reorientation of our spiritual intellect or our spiritual stance in life that is what's being discussed here when the lord says repent repent reorient yourself reorient don't turn away from that which is dead which is contrary to god turn away from the idols turn away from the passions and reorient your way and look to me look to christ right so that spiritual reorientation, that's what is necessary for us to be saved. It's not necessary for us to acquire a lot of knowledge about things. And that's what happens. A lot of converts, a lot of you and, you and I, a lot of you here tonight and myself, we go very broadly and we acquire a lot of knowledge about things. And then we go on the Internet and we write all of our opinions and we have many things to say to everyone about what we think the truth is. And that's not necessarily bad, depending on our disposition, if we're humble and loving. But it is not salvation. Acquiring that kind of knowledge is not salvation. It's not bringing us closer to Christ. We have to reorient ourselves. And that means the whole person and the way of life is reoriented, right? Right? 
So this cannot happen except by a free embrace, totally voluntarily, we submit ourselves to Christ. That's the MO, that's the ID of the Christian, is that he voluntarily, continually reorients himself, continually repents every day, and voluntarily submits himself to Christ. What the demons didn't do. That's what the Christian does. And we see in, in, in the scriptures, this is a very important aspect of this whole path to salvation and this basic stance that we have to take on. We see in the scriptures two stories that help us to really go deeper into this question of freely submitting ourselves to Christ. The rich man comes to the Lord and he asks what's to, what he needs to do to be saved. And the Lord says, well, keep the commandments and all the rest, which is what a Jew would expect. And so in a way, he was kind of testing the rich man to see, uh, you know, is that satisfactory? Or does he need, is he actually looking for something more? And he says, okay, I've done that. Is that really all I need to do? What do I need to do more? And he says, well, okay, since you're asking, and this is very interesting, see how he tests the freedom. This is what we see in the lives of the saints and in the monastic uh, uh, experience, is that they don't push anything on anybody. They wait for the person to come and seek and love and desire, right? So how much do you really want to be my disciple? He says, what else? What else? And he says, well, okay, sell everything and come follow me. And the rich man, who we should not only think in terms of money. This is not just about he had a lot of money or a lot of goods. You can be a rich person in this life and have a lot of intellectual goods. You could be, you could be an idol worshiper of your own intellect like, the, like Lucifer was. Uh, you could be rich in this world in a variety of ways. You could have fame and fortune. You could have even a ton of people who loved you, humanly speaking, but you put that above Christ. You put that above his, his being his disciple. And so that richness, which is ultimately poverty, because if it's without Christ and not in Christ and for Christ, it ends with death, that he had to set aside. In other words, he had to put the hierarchy proper. He had to put things in priority. What did he really want? What does he really want? What do we really want? If he was rich, how much more are we today? There's no one here tonight that's not richer than most people in the history of the world. With all of the things we have that tie us to this world, all of the, 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 the conveniences and comforts that could only be imagined in the fantasy of people oh, 150 to 1,000 years ago, even the richest, the, the kings of the earth didn't have and don't have what the normal average American has today with his toys and his technology and all the rest. So we have, if the rich man had a difficulty letting, letting go his sheep and whatever else he might have had in his day, how much more do we have the problem of the rich man and how much more do we have to voluntarily, daily set aside those things for the sake of Christ? And yet, he says, he walks away from the Lord and does not follow him, does not deny himself, and he walks away. And here's what the most important part of this story. The Lord let him go. He didn't try to bring him back. He didn't try to cut a deal. He didn't say, we have a part-time discipleship uh, program <laughs> that you could uh, sign up for. He didn't say, uh, I need you because actually we need a little more income for our, you know, we're, we're living off of uh, 
uh, sleeping on the ground over here, and uh, we could really use somebody who's rich like you to in increase our uh, income so we can live and do that. It doesn't resemble, the Lord doesn't resemble most of what we see as uh, missionaries and teachers today, does he? So that freedom he really values. And this is the key. This is what is in our hands. Our freedom. What do we do with our freedom? What do we do with our day? How do we use it? Every moment of our day we should be examining, am I using it for the sake of communion? Or am I using it for the sake of egotism? And this very short life, which is going to end in the grave, perhaps tomorrow. What am I doing with my time, which has been given for repentance, reorientation, return? That's another way to think of repentance, is return to God. What did the prodigal do? He repented. How? He got up and he went back. Do we get up and leave and go back? Or do we say, I want to be your disciple, but I also like that food that I was enjoying while with the pigs. We've got to put it all aside and truly deny ourselves, pick up our cross and follow. The other example is when the disciples were following after the Lord and he turns to them and says they must eat his body and drink his blood. And in the scriptures it says many did not follow after that point. Most did not follow. He, he didn't just double down, he tripled down on this. He says again and again, Throughout the whole chapter of John, 51 to 69, the whole point from 51 to 69, he says again and again, I am the bread of life. You must eat. You must drink. You have no life in you again and again and again. And he could have easily said, look, don't get me wrong. It's just a spiritual thing. Don't be grossed out about it. Right? Some Protestants might say, well, see, he really doesn't mean his own flesh and blood. Well, he could have really said it differently, couldn't he? Or he could, have, he could have said, let me explain it for you. I don't want you to walk away. I want disciples. I like disciples. He didn't do any of that, did he? He let them all go. And he didn't only let them go. He turned to his own 12, who he knew were destined to be, sit on the thrones of, and judge Israel. He knew that these 12 were going to be his disciples to the four corners of the earth. And he still says, do you want to leave? Would you like to walk away? You're free. And, and we have a choice. Will we respond with an examination, a rational examination of the words of the Lord and try to unpack it with our rational mind, not our noose, but our rational mind? Or will we respond like Peter who said, where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, I don't know. I submit to you. That's the stance of a disciple. We have many in the church today who don't have that stance. And how do we know they don't have that stance? Because they're examining and re-examining holy tradition and holy fathers and teachings of saints. And they're telling us that actually we, we can do this and we can do that and we can change that and improve that. And that whole stance does not resemble a disciple. As I said earlier, there's no, the Lord is, does not play favorites. What he gives you today in the church is what he gave them 2,000 years ago. Even if the grown-up version of this church, this body, is very different externally. You might say, well, the church today has many, many things that the church didn't have in the first century, the third century. You're thinking of it wrong. It's, that's quantitative. That's external. The spiritual essence has not changed, even if the church has grown like an old man today, right? It's not a baby in the first century. It's 2,000 years old. There's many things added, all for our benefit. 
But we have intellectuals and academics who think that, no, 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 no. We have accretions. We have to strip it back to the simple times. This is what our Protestant friends or even some of the Orthodox academics think. No, we need to go back to our Lord and say, you have the eternal life. I don't know. I submit to you. This free submission is an example of true repentance. That's when we truly are reorienting ourselves to Christ and we are making progress. So quickly, this is could go on. I could give a whole talk on this slide right here, but it's very important. We read, and I'm going to read it to you in a minute. Actually, let's, um, I think I might have this in the wrong order. Let's go to the next one. I'm going to read quickly to this very important from the Apostle Paul, and then we're going to double back and talk about it. This is the spiritual man versus the natural man. He says, the, the Apostle Paul says, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us, by his spirit. See this, what he says here? No one has seen these things, and yet he's prepared them for those who love him. And indeed, he's revealed them to us. So, the hidden wisdom has been revealed to us, but to who? Not to everyone. Who has he revealed this hidden wisdom to? It goes on in verse 11. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man, but the spirit of God. This is really key. So the Spirit of God reveals it to man. Only the Spirit of God knows it. So only the man who has the Spirit of God knows it. And he says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Spirit teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. I'm going to just keep reading and now I'll go back to explain these. These are key passages in the yellow here. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is the spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged by, of no man. For, he, for who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. All right, now go back to the previous one. So we have the faithful man and the spiritual man. We also have the carnal man, which I'm not going to talk about much tonight. The spiritual man and the faithful man. Uh, I'm sorry, it should be the, uh, the, fifth, the spiritual man and the, and the, the rational man. Uh, in, Greek, in Greek, what he says here as the natural man in English is psychikos anthropos. And that could easily be translated as the rationalist. So when he says the natural man, he's talking about the rationalist. And if we're honest, that's who we are. We are raised in this society to be the rationalist. We, this society is, above all, rationalist. Rationalism reigns in the world, and there is nothing greater than the rational intellect. And so the, the natural man that he talks about that cannot know the things of the Spirit is most people in most places of the world today. That also happens to be the common denominator of all the heretics. 
hate to, hate to say it, but that's the reality. That's the common denominator of all the heretics. What? The pride of the rationalist that he trusts his own rational intellect. And by that, he judges everything, including that which is above, which he cannot know, but he puts under the microscope of his rational intellect, that is the things of God, as the Apostle Paul said, he cannot know. Only the Spirit of God can teach the man, the spiritual man, the things of God. And they're off limits, right? So the faithful man, the man who is returned to God, who's, re who's reoriented his whole noose, the one who has now entrusted his life to God, is the spiritual man. The faithful man is the spiritual man. And the rationalist is unfaithful. He cannot understand, he cannot enter into the mystery, he cannot submit himself. So what did we have with the Incarnation and the Church? Because that is the continuation of the Incarnation. We have the spiritual life. Only in the Church do we have the spiritual life. Everything before Pentecost and before the Incarnation is in the realm of pre-spiritual. In other words, we don't have the giving of the Spirit, which is the whole point of the Incarnation. And unfortunately, most of Christianity today has reverted to this stage. It's reverted to this moralism and this rationalism and legalism, right? So we look at the canons of the church, or we look at the teachings of the fathers, or we look at the, 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 the uh, liturgical life, oftentimes not as spiritual men, not with the Spirit of God, but with the rational intellect, and we look at it legalistically, and we don't understand the life of the church. And so we have to, brothers and sisters, we have to double down on those two things which will open the door of the spiritual life to us. And that is trust in God and reorientation, continually reorienting ourselves to Christ. So go two, two down to the mind of Christ. All right, so again, as I said before, and we're almost done here, two or three more slides. The mind of Christ is not the rational intellect, but the noose, the spirit of man. The spiritual life means we have the spirit of God within us. The whole struggle now for us who've been baptized, chrismated, and communed, the whole struggle is to what? Uncover the salvation which has already been given to us. Everything was given to you in the mysteries of initiation. There's nothing lacking. You didn't get baptized, and then you need a few more things after that in order to have Christ. In baptism, chrismation, and communion, everything is given to you. You are saved. What happens? You bury that under your passions and sin. You bury that under your, the garbage of the fallen man. You go back to the vomit, as the, the apostle, the uh, St. John Chrysostom says, the person who repents and then goes back to his sin is like a dog going back to his vomit. That's, the, that's what happens to us. We enter into the life of the church, but then we go back to the things of the world. We want to have two masters, and we bury this kingdom of God, which is hidden within us. Remember, the Apostle Paul says, is hidden and only available to the spiritual man. What we do is we bury it, hide it, and then we go have to uncover all that, and that's the whole process of purification. That's the whole process of asceticism. That's the whole point of fasting and prayer, is to get rid of the obstacles that the salvation which has been given and is given continually in the church to us can shine forth, manifest itself, and be for us our experience, our, our, our daily life. 
all of all that means that salvation is a gift. Again, the one before the zeros, right? He does everything. We add our zeros, our struggle, our asceticism, our good deeds, which, of course, are not good if they're not of God, right? There's only one who is good, and that is God. So if it's in Christ and for Christ, then it's a good deed. If it's our deeds, without the one before the zeros, it's just human, and it's not good. It has been given to us, and we have buried it, and so we have to uncover it all. And that's the process of the ascetic and spiritual life. That's what's going on in the monasteries. That's what's going on in all the lives of the saints. That whole process, now some of them reach it very quickly, and then they fly up to theosis. Most of us are swimming in the sea of purification most of our life. The problem is a lot of us don't want to smell the stench. Go to the next one. It stinks. It smells for all that garbage to come up. That whole process of purification is difficult. That's why the Lord says, pick up your cross and follow after me. It's a daily crucifixion. And you know what it's a crucifixion of more than anything? Not just our desires and our, 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 our carnal man. It's really painful when we crucify the intellect. Crucify the intellect. Because this is where the pride is. It's in the man's intellect, right? So that's where we have to work more than anything. And that's where people who cannot submit to Christ and, and live simply trusting Him, they have the most troubles in life. They're the ones who suffer the most. Because that's where we have to make progress in this purification of the noose, the thoughts that come to us. The whole, noetic, the whole struggle on a daily basis is what kind of thoughts are we producing? Right? If you... Observe yourself today, tomorrow, the next day. Ask yourself, of all the thoughts I made today, how many of them were blessed, positive, beautiful, according to Christ, about Christ, for Christ, in Christ? And how many of them were egotistical? I want. They didn't give me. I, I'm upset. I'm jealous. Why didn't they pick me? And blah, 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 and all the rest, right? You have to examine. That's where the kingdom of God will be revealed. We must allow that kingdom to shine and be revealed within us. Again, that's through the ascetic struggle. But the ascetic struggle is not just to fast. Oh, I did my fast. I'm a good faster. I kept the fast. I, maybe I, I didn't eat any dairy today. That's really not the essence of the whole question of asceticism. What is it? That's a legalistic approach to it. What is it? It's that we do it for Christ. And we do it in Christ. That's when it becomes orthodox asceticism and unto salvation. If we struggle in the church, but it's a religion, it's, it's because I'm supposed to do it. I'm required to do it. They want me to do it. My mom tells me, my dad, my husband says. All of that is, doesn't, doesn't translate into transformation. doesn't translate into purification and illumination. It has to be for Christ and in Christ. It has to be for the person of Christ. And it has to be according to the way of Christ. And in Christ means in the body of Christ, right? It's for the person of Christ and in the body of Christ. That's when it becomes truly salvific. And we make progress. We're going to talk about that tomorrow a lot. Last, last one and then we're done. You can take questions. So obviously, orthodox asceticism, the orthodox ascetic ethos, which what this, this whole four days, uh, four lectures are about, generally speaking, we're going to talk about other things as well, it excludes all kinds of religion. 
we are not religious in the Orthodox Church. We don't believe in religion. We don't practice a religion. Religion in the sense of what? Human efforts to attain up to God, right? In other words, I give and he gives me. The exchange, that is the religious, common to all the religions of the world, you know? You go and you give your offering and you, you, you get back the, uh, the blessings and the providence of God. Uh, you go on the feast days, you walk away. You, there are many people in the Orthodox Church who treat Orthodoxy like a religion. They're going to go on the feast day of their son and they're going to give their offering in order to have protection for their son or to get into a college or whatever it might be. Not that the Lord doesn't care about these things. He does. Not that he might not even give those things. He does. However, if that's all we're doing, we're treating God like the religions of the world. That's not the point. The point is purification, illumination, deification. The point is communion with the person of God. Amen. Hey.